Hello, and welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm Joe Schumacher, and today we've got something new coming to you. I'm happy to introduce two brand new hosts of the show. Uh, first, joining me on my left, Paul Evans, PhD. How's it going, Paul? Welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. Pleasure to be here. Um, so, Paul, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you study? You're a postdoc here, right? Yeah, I'm a new postdoc in Rioja Yasuda's lab. And in the Yasuda lab, we're particularly interested in studying the activity of single proteins that contribute to forming a new memory. Awesome. Uh, thanks for being here. And also joining the show, also sitting on my left, Audrey Bonnat, PhD. Audrey, how's it going? And um, what do you study here at MPFI? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I'm a postdoc here at MPFI working with Jason Christie on the cerebellum and more specifically on what are the cellular bases for cerebellar-dependent motor learning. Cool. Um, so the two of you recently interviewed a great guest. What do you have for us today? Yeah, we sat down earlier with Dr. Claudia Bani. She's a professor at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. And uh, she talked with us about her research on the molecular mechanisms that underlie intellectual disabilities um, and with this particular emphasis on fragile X syndrome. Yeah, so fragile X syndrome is a very interesting disorder to study because it's due to a mutation in a single gene, fml one So we can easily model it in mice and flies and study it in the lab. It's also the most common form of uh, inherited intellectual disability. But this gene that's mutated, it's not all straightforward uh, because this protein called FMRP uh, actually binds hundreds or even potentially thousands of RNAs inside of neurons. And in normal, healthy uh, neurons, what it does is translate the right amount of those RNAs into proteins. But when this gene is mutated, that no longer happens correctly. Wow. So I guess in one sense, it's ideal to study because we know where to look with this single genetic locus. But at the same time, there's um, lots of different targets that could result in lots of different physiological consequences. So I imagine that leaves us with lots of questions. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we'll ask to Dr. Bani today. And we'll also hear about her growing interest in expanding her research to other diseases. Actually, diseases such as autism and schizophrenia can co-occur with fragile X. Interestingly, a person with fragile X may have some degree of protection against cancer, too. So lots of things going on there. Great. Well, let's uh, take a listen to your interview. So today we're sitting down with Dr. Claudia Bani. Uh, she comes to us from Switzerland, the University of Lausanne, where she serves as professor and chair in the Department of Fundamental Neuroscience. And uh, Dr. Bani is a respected world expert in studying uh, neuropathologies that involve uh, proteins at specific neuronal connections called synapses. And uh, her work is focused on understanding uh, inherited intellectual disability in social disorders. So, uh, Claudia, to start off, why would you choose to study intellectual disability? What drew you to these models versus the many other diseases we see in the brain? Well, first of all, let me start saying that uh, uh, the beauty of science sometimes is really the discovery that we make by serendipity. So I was working on a very basic molecular mechanism um, that is the processing of information in a subcellular compartments like synapses. And while I was 
addressing some of those questions. Then there were papers published by leaders in the field of Fragile X, Bill Green at that time, showing that uh, FMRP, the protein absent or mutated in the Fragile X syndrome, the most uh, frequent form of inherited intellectual disabilities, was regulating uh, local protein synthesis. So at that point, there was a click in what I was doing, and, and I started to become more and more interested in an aspect that was far away from my training because I'm a biologist, which is the medical part of what I was studying. So for our audience, could you just introduce for us what you mean by local protein synthesis and how this happens in neurons in the brain? So our neurons um, communicate to each other through subcellular uh, compartments called synapses. And it has been shown by many labs, um, starting with early, during early 80s, that some um, messenger RNA that encode or transport the genetic information are not only translated and used by the ribosome, which are these machines in our cells that produce proteins in the cell bodies, but also in um, points far away from the cell bodies. And these synapses are these contacts that lie away from the cell bodies and are in a way a little bit of mini cells independent from the rest of the cell. So you mentioned the protein FMRP that you started to study. Can you tell us what this protein does and why it's important in the context of intellectual disabilities? So FMRP stands for Fragile X Mental Retardation Protein. It is a fascinating protein. It's an RNA-binding protein, which means it regulates those messenger RNA that I mentioned before. Um, at multiple levels. So it's involved in the transport of the RNAs, in the translation of these mRNAs, and patients with fragile X, uh, which do not have pro the protein or have mutations in the protein, have a dysregulated mRNA metabolism. What does it mean? That there is an excess of proteins that is synthesized in the um, cells, neuronal cells, and possibly also non-neuronal cells like glia and astrocytes. So you mentioned that these uh, small signaling compartments exist inside of neurons that allow the synapses that allow them to kind of act independently of the cell allows them to have this very fascinating ability to finely tune things. And um, we know that this is upregulated up or down just a little bit that we can get a number of diseases. So why do you think it's so sensitive? Why wouldn't we have had a stronger mechanism to maintain that? So those synapses are, as you mentioned, very plastic and, um, and they're plastic uh, during our life is not only during the you know early postnatal life, adolescence, but also in the adult phase of our life, and and in a way are a little bit the the hallmark of our um, brain functioning and connection. We start with synapses, at least my view is synaptic centric, then we go to circuitry then we go to different brain areas, and then we go to behavior. So in a way, it's the starting point for our connections. And the way I see it is that is also a converging site for 
basic neuronal communication. And that's why different intellectual disabilities like fragile X, schizophrenia, um, Down syndrome, even neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's disease at the end have all uh, this synaptic dysmorphogenesis. So there are basic mechanisms conserved, but then of course the fine tuning and the differences between one disease or the other is due to specific uh, complexes compared to conserve a common complexes plus additional factors that could be the environment, um, the education, uh, the stimuli we receive, how much we challenge our brain and many other factors that as a whole make us what we are. So you mentioned that in the absence of FMRP, um, in the context of Fragile X syndrome, there is an increased protein synthesis. And somehow we sometimes think, well, why is it bad? Because the more the better it should be. So why is an increased protein synthesis uh, responsible for the disease? It's true that a priori one would say we have more, and so we have more, you know, possibility to reshuffle processes and to have a backup for other processes. But thinking back how the synapses is structured and functional, so it's it's really, we cannot grow too big, we cannot be too small. So there is a fine tuning and the correct amount of proteins which are synthesized and used by the synapses make our neurons correctly working. And that's why a little bit too much, even 10, 20% for a synapses, which is one micron, will make a major difference. So you don't want to have too much of a protein that does remodeling of the cytoskeleton or increases the adhesion of uh, the synapses because, for example, then there's the pruning, which is this consolidation process not occur or the dynamic of the synapses, the stability of the synapses would be different. So at 10-20%, it's indeed a major problem, physiological problem for a synaptic compartment. Is this something that's common for other diseases? This is really now over the past, I would say, five years, an increased protein synthesis is considered an hallmark not only of fragile X, but also of autism. So it appears that additional mouse models for autism uh, also have an increased protein synthesis. If this happens in the patients, I think that's currently under investigation by our group and many other labs. So we and others have collected evidence that Patient cells have also an increased protein synthesis, but a better investigation is required that would take into account the human individual variability. Great. And one thing uh, that I found particularly interesting from your research um, has been the link between actual fragile X syndrome and this abundant protein synthesis and actually its ability to confer protection against cancer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that project got started and developed? These findings were for us a little bit unexpected uh, since we were working on the nervous system uh, since several years, but then we were intrigued by the fact that there were cancer types where um, 
there was an increase of the RNA encoding for the fragile X mental retardation protein. And so we did further investigations. We collaborate with uh, medical doctors in Italy, in Belgium, in, uh, in UK. What we could observe is that patients with fragile X have a decreased incidence of cancer. And, um, and then this took us to the next step, which was, okay, which is the mechanism? And interesting enough, uh, what we discover is that at the end, FMRP, the protein lacking uh, or mutated in fragile X patients, it's really a, a molecular machine in a way. So it regulates uh, the synthesis of certain proteins in the nervous system, but also regulates the synthesis of proteins uh, involving cancer progression. And some are exactly the same proteins, like cadirin, uh, vimentin, and so on. It's simply the different way of regulating them. And if we think about cancer progression and neuronal migration, I, I find many parallelism in terms of molecular events and also cellular events. So it seems to be an evolving focus of your lab um, from moving on your early days of working on the basic mechanisms of how local translation happens in the brain to now it seems like you're looking at this maybe common etiology of different neuropsychiatric disorders. Is that where you see yourself going now? Trying to yes, find a this is absolutely correct. So we started with Fragile X, which is still our main focus in the lab. I think there is a lot still to be discovered and a lot more that needs to be done to before we think about uh, a therapy for Fragile X. So that we keep it as an important focus for the the lab, really understand more and more the molecular mechanism because what we understand in a physiological uh, conditions will help us to understand the pathological aspect of it. But again, being very open, we started with Fragile X and then one of the interactors of the Fragile X mental retardation protein is a protein that is deleted or duplicated um, if it is a protein that, if deleted or duplicated, uh, predisposed to autism or schizophrenia. And then going back to the patients with fragile X, we can find, you know, a 20, 10% of patients with psychosis, with, with obsessive compulsive disorders, with ASD. So I think from one disease, we are linking to the next one, simply discovering um, pathways and molecules in the lab. And that's the fascinating part of science is that some some discoveries are unpredictable and also the interest that we have can turn according to the experience we have and the colleagues we meet and that's the great thing about science. Um, so you're studying the molecular aspects of diseases such as fragile X syndrome and schizophrenia as you just mentioned. Can you tell us how you study these diseases in animal models? Like um, how can you assess intellectual disability on a mouse? Exactly. That's the big question uh, in particular because there is um, a large variability in the observation that we make in a lab. So it's very important to have a standardized setup of experiments we can rely on. And then I believe it's important to have more than one model system 
before making a major claim. So what the effort that we made in the lab over the past years is trying to have both the mouse system and the fly system. Uh, the fly is a beautiful system because of its genetics. Uh, it's easy to manipulate. Uh, we can screen large numbers and we can do a lot in terms of also compound screening and identified basic molecular mechanism. Then we pass and validate this using the mouse model. And in collaboration with clinicians, so our work on the daily base has collaborations with clinicians. So once a week I meet with clinicians to discuss aspects related to autism and schizophrenia. Um, once a week or once every couple of weeks, but let's say that's a core component of our lab. And uh, we try to parallel also the observation in flies and mice with observation we can have um, looking at the patients. So we try to have a court of patients and, and also monitor as much as we can in remote or on-site behavior. So it's possible to study social behavior. There are very well-defined tests um, in flies, for example, courtship and competition for food are two basic uh, um, tests that we have, largely studied by the fly community. And uh, in the mouse model, um, there are additional tests like uh, the three-chamber test, where the mouse can choose between an empty or a cage or a cage with a stranger, the tube test where you can monitor social dominance, uh, the play, the playground, you know, they, they play in a certain way mice. There are at least 15 different movements that they do when they interact. So it's possible to monitor also the way they play. So and all this is well standardized and then it's helping us a lot to understand uh, the social aspect of intellectual disabilities such as autism, schizophrenia and fragile X. I think your published work um, pretty clearly demonstrates the power of collaborations between the bench and clinic. Um, has you always been involved uh, clinically with patients, uh, or is this something new since you established your lab that you've been involved with clinical neuroscience as well as bench research? Well, when I, I have been training like a hardcore molecular biologist um, and as well the follow-up training as a postdoc uh, was as, as a cellular and molecular biologist. Uh, so the interest to be closer to the patient is something that I developed um, not, not when I started my own lab, that there at that point I was still interested in only basic mechanism, but a few years later. So the more we were studying fragile X in terms of the molecular mechanism that the protein was playing in the cell, and the more I start asking myself, yeah, but what does that mean in terms of patients? Why I'm studying this with a mouse model? So I had the opportunity to meet fantastic clinicians who signed my path in a way. So Giovanni Neri in Rome and Rondi Agerman in the States. And these are the two that really two and these are the two clinicians who really introduced me into observing fragile X and discussing, you know, the clinical feature of fragile X. And then while I was in Italy, um, I had the opportunity to become closer and closer to the Italian Fragile X Association. 
and uh, and with them I could you know really discuss what our observations and see kids once or twice a year over the years and and since then I would say over the past eight ten years they are referring point for my lab and also for my research. So with your experience between different places, uh, seeing patients in the clinic, is there a difference in cultural attitude towards uh, intellectual disabilities that you've noticed or anything that's strikingly different between the places with the patients? Well, so far, my experience in terms of approach to the clinical work as an observer, because I'm not an MD, I'm a biologist, has been in the States and uh, in Italy. And soon I will start collaborating also with Nadia Chaban in Lausanne and observing patients once in a while. So I will see also a third approach. Um, I would say that, yes, in USA and in Italy, um, I found a different way of uh, relating um, in terms of maybe uh, st therapeutic strategies and uh, opportunities that are given to the kids. I was impressed when I was observing patients with Rondi Agerman that at that time, this was a few years ago, uh, medical doctors could prescribe an iPad to help kids to train themselves and to learn uh, the alphabet. And uh, this would have been possible in Italy. So for certain aspects that are different in terms of uh, um, not proactivity, but in terms of what is possible to do for, for them. So uh, talking about this, what are the therapeutic options right now for people with fragile X syndrome and um, how do you feel, how, how do you think that your research can help developing new therapeutics? So over the past maybe eight years, there have been several clinical trials on fragile X. Uh, I would say maybe more than 40. Um, and they try to um, ameliorate some of the aspects. So fragile X is a complex syndrome. So we don't have only the MGLUR impairment. We don't have only the GABA impairment. So which means, what does that mean? That there are many neurotransmitter uh, pathways that are affected. And so that's why it's difficult to cure uh, a complex syndrome like fragile X. Um, so all these clinical trials were um, focusing on one or the other pathways. Unfortunately, so far, um, we do not have a positive outcome. Uh, there were two big clinical trials uh, that failed for absence of positive outcome measurements. And um, we, in terms of we, basic scientists and the clinicians as well, think that one problem could have been the absence of uh, um, patient stratification. But still, we don't have proof for that. But that's what we believe at the moment is that the patient stratification was not there yet. And this is something that we acquired knowledge over the years and we elaborate better how to um, 
understand the difference between one patient and the other. So many labs, including ours, now is focusing on trying to um, identify biomarkers that we could use uh, in the Fragile X population and then make subgroups of patients. And that hopefully will help the next clinical trials. Okay, so trying to follow up a little bit on this, like you're talking about different groups of patients. Can you explain uh, what does that come from? So what is this disease really due to? And why do why is there a spectrum? Yes, so I would say that that is not something specific for fragile X. I believe that a disease and, and people affected by one disease are still different one from the other. So now if we, under the big umbrella of Fragile X, which is due to mutation or absence of a single protein, I can tell you that the population, so the patients are very different. So of course there are commonalities in their IQ, in their behavior, but there are some that are severely affected and there are others that are only mildly affected. So some are even autonomous, they can work, they have a job and some others don't. So and it's the same genetic mutation. That means that there is much more than a single gene and a single disease. So the way we should start thinking is more an individual. An individual with that mutation, which is the history of the patient, the family, the experience and so on. And that's why I think the biomarks will help us to profile more the patients, not only 20% FMRP, 50% FMRP, but that patient in that context. So what about in the lab? Um, we have these animal models of fragile X syndrome. Do we see the same variability in behavior? So for flies, I would say, I don't feel confident to say that there is much variability there. Uh, so far, all the data we have uh, do not seem to show that. But for the mouse model, I would say definitely there is variability that we should take into consideration. Yeah. So let's switch it up a little bit. Your lab recently moved to Switzerland, I heard. So what's that like moving your research program from one institute to another and dealing with moving people and getting everything set up? Yeah, that, was, that's, that has been and still is a challenge um, that I decide to take at this stage of my career with everything that comes with. Um, I think I had this opportunity to uh, direct my science more into physiology and behavior, um, something I wanted to do over the past years, and, um, and Lausanne offered me this possibility. So the Department of Fundamental Neuroscience, uh, is, its is strength is that there are scientists working on different uh, disease and also on physiological aspect of the brain. Um, and I could also develop their uh, approaches that are more into behavior, animal behavior, electrophysiology, and uh, collaborate with clinicians and hopefully through collaborations with company, think about 
more preclinical work. So it's I found that has the three um, fantastic opportunity of having good funding, uh, good collaborations with clinicians, and uh, good basic science. And altogether, this should provide us means and energy for the next 10 years, hopefully more. That sounds great. And it's, uh, you mentioned funding. Um, so what is the current uh, funding situation like for science in Europe? I know we focus a lot here in the U.S. on what our local funding is, but thinking more globally, how are things in Europe right now? So I, w- I would say that funding is an issue everywhere and uh, we are aware as scientists that the moment we decide to continue this career, this means spending a lot of time thinking about elaborating ideas and writing grants. And that's a fact and we will have to accept it. Once we have accepted this, that is part of our job, writing grants, um, it really depends. I had the possibility of working in different countries in Europe. So it's Italy. I still have a, a group in Italy working mainly on fragile X and cancer at the University of Rome Tor Vergata. And uh, so I know the funding situation in Italy, which is really not good. Um, We rely a lot on charity foundation like Teleton, but we don't get support by the Ministry of University or very little. And uh, other charity foundations are very small, so it's very difficult to survive. So some bank foundations also give money for science, but mainly in the north part of Italy. So there are many struggles to get our science moving. And this is the reason why many Italian scientists also leave or try to get a second lab where they could complement the science they do in Italy. I worked also in in Germany at the MBL, but at that point was as a postdoc and the MBL is a fantastic place because it, uh, you know, there is a lot of support and funding and as a postdoc, everything is great because the only thing to think is the science. I also worked many years ago as a postdoc in France, where I find the situation a little bit closer to Italy, but still at much better level. So I'm part of several committees evaluating grants in France at the moment, and I see that there is more opportunity compared to Italy. And then my experience in Belgium, I was in the Flemish part, um, and there uh, the the funding uh, situation is not so bad at all. So there are opportunities and there are also foundations. And um, I was there for nine years and I managed to write and obtain uh, many grants that allowed my lab to do mouse work, which we all know is expensive. So the funding opportunities are there. The different countries are not the same. Uh, Germany and Switzerland, of course, there are countries where the funding is better than others. And Switzerland is one of those. So I would say that in terms of salaries and opportunities and success rate, I would say maybe is number one in Europe at the moment. So that was also, for me, an opportunity to catch. How is it to manage two labs in two different countries? Traveling a lot. (laughs) Um, Well, what we do, 
I structured the two labs in a way that uh, I talk to them a lot. Uh, so we have joint Skype meetings. And then I have students coming to Lausanne and or going to Rome. So there is a continuous exchange. But there is also a lot of traveling on my side and uh, a lot of work in the evening. So to cover both labs. But it's rewarding because... Uh, I have a fantastic team on both sides. They they love what they do and they put a lot of energy without hours. And, you know, they work Saturdays and Sundays and they're eager to do what they do. And so this is rewarding for me and uh, keeps me going. Thank you very much, Claudia, for sitting with us today and sharing your passion for our science and uh, enjoy the rest of your stay with us. Thanks to you. It has been a great pleasure to meet you, to discuss science with you, to see the enthusiasm that all of you have here. And I think that's really a great sign that it's a great place for science here. Thank you. Ciao, Claudia. <laughs> well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our producers in the Office of Science Communication. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NeuroPodcast. Until next time, bye guys. Bye. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast. <laughs>